Well, good morning. My name's Tom, I'm one of the elders here at LAFC. And I'm wondering if any of you have ever found yourself in a situation where the, the outcome or, or getting out of that situation just seemed to be impossible. That, that as far as you could tell, from the best that you could conjure up to the best counsel you could get, that there's simply no way out. And, and there was no solution that seemed even close to being able to help you. Maybe you feel like you're in a situation like that right now, or you're walking along with somebody who is. So before we get into our text for today, I wanna share a quick story to help encourage you. This happened a few weeks ago, and we'll be talking about a part of the world that has been experiencing conflict for, for quite a long time. This is in Southeast Asia. But a few weeks ago, there was a, 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 a new offensive. There was a, uh, a new a wave of violence that broke out across this area of the world. And it came as such a surprise to the people living in that region that there were four families for gospel-believing, people who were there for a, a reason. They were there on a mission who got swept up in this. 25 people, men, women, and children. And it happened so quickly that they did not have a means to escape it as this violence broke out all around them. And so they, the these four families, have a mutual contact in one of our global partners, somebody that we support. If you give to this church, you support them. Some of you support them through prayer. And just in case you're new here, you're gonna notice I'm talking in generalities, which is what we do because in this, in this world that's very digital, we have to be careful what we put out there. There's a world that, that, hates, that hates the gospel. And so we gotta be careful not to, to dox or, you know, they're using AI tools and things like this. We have to be very careful how we talk about things going on in other parts of the world. But these four families reach out to one of our global partners and what winds up happening in his life for the next couple of days is very different than the reason that we sent him there. You see, he winds up being the point person coordinating their escape. And this was a very precarious situation. So what he does, he gets on the phone, he's talking to anybody who can give him information on how to direct these families out. So he's talking from everyone, from the, the U.S. Embassy to the, to the Canadian Army. Now, like, I don't know what that looks like, but I'm imagining probably somebody on a horse, like tall hat, maybe flask of maple syrup. But, you know, whatever it is, he's grabbing information. What he's doing, he's relaying that info to this caravan of families, saying, okay, this road, from what I hear, is clear. You can move there. Okay, now we're going to stop and maybe redirect over this way. Okay, now you can go again and take this road. And this goes on for about 56 hours, where he's like, I'm not sure. Is he explaining this? I'm not sure, like, how much I slept. Like, I don't really know, like, if I ate more than one or two meals. And so well, we can only describe this as a work of the Holy Spirit. But what I can tell you is that all 25 people and their dog made it out safely. Like, praise God. Praise God. So there are these impossible situations, but it shouldn't surprise us when God acts this way, especially as we're in this Christmas season and we're remembering one of the most impossible things we could possibly fathom, that God would take the form of a man in order to save us. Like if he's willing to do that, then no story that we're gonna see here on earth can possibly top it. So today, you could tell from our promo video or our bumper video that we're starting a new series here, a Christmas series for the next couple of weeks, and we're gonna be starting out in the book of Matthew. That's gonna be where our series kind of hinges off of. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter one. 
And if you don't have one, our ushers be happy to provide you, provide you with a Bible. And as you turn there, and you turn to Matthew chapter one, knowing that we're talking about Christmas here, my, my guess is that you're probably scanning down through the chapter and you think, okay, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter one, starting in verse 18. That's where it begins to talk about the Christmas story, the birth of Christ. To which I would say, whoa, slow up here. We're actually not gonna go there. We're gonna be starting in Matthew chapter one, verse one, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, if you brought a friend with you today, this is where that panic probably starts to set in. A series on a genealogy may not sound like the most riveting of passages that we could be spending time in. And, you know, I had to laugh when I, uh, when I saw the bumper video for the first time that our creative team put together. It really captures how many of us feel about genealogies, right? It's like a bunch of small print that we just go down through very quickly in order to get to the good stuff. But before we get to, um, to our, our preaching today, I want to just spend a few minutes, if you would, spend a few minutes teaching how it is that we can engage with genealogies, knowing that God put these in Scripture for a reason. And to do this, I'm going to borrow a tool from one of our other teaching ministries. It's called WBF, Women's Bible Fellowship. If you don't know what that is, they, they meet in the fall and the spring. And you know, what these ladies are learning to do is to wield the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, like Lady Galadriel, right? As they, as they fight darkness, as they take on sin in their own lives and in the lives of this church, and I'm realizing that probably if, if you're not understanding my Lord of the Rings reference, just like know there's a reason they don't use me in their promo videos. But these women, they engage with the word. And one of the things, one of the tools that they use as they read through scripture is they, they look for in every passage what they call a timeless truth. A timeless truth, things that are timeless, things that are true about God that don't change. They have a, a broader definition here that they use, and, it's, and they say that they define a timeless truth as things that are true of God, his kingdom, humanity, salvation, or his design for life for all time. Now, in this series, we're going to be focusing specifically on things that are true about God, things that are true about the heart of God for all time. We're going to be doing that by looking at the genealogy that's in Matthew chapter 1. So if you're there now, I'm going to not read the whole thing. I'm going to get down through about verse 6. And when I finish, just knowing that this can be a text that we struggle to find value in. And when I finish reading, I'm going to remind us that this is the word of the Lord. And if you're thankful for it, I'd ask you to reply, thanks be to God. So starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, who we'll be talking about in a little bit here. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we just got through a part of a genealogy. It might be the first time you actually read one word for word in quite some time. 
So before we get into our main text, I just wanna pull out for us, maybe you saw some of these, pull out three timeless truths that we can see in this genealogy. All right, so the first one you can see in verse one is that Jesus is a king. And we see that because it immediately, right out of the gate, Matthew begins to draw this connection between Jesus the Messiah and King David. So he's making a point that Jesus Christ is part of a royal line. This is helpful for us because I'm sure maybe some of you have bumped into people who try to persuade you that maybe Jesus is just, he was just a good teacher. But you can be pretty sure that they don't know how to read their genealogies because if they had read this, they would know that scripture communicates that he was more than a teacher, that he was a king. And then if we add to that what we've been reading in Genesis, and if you would read through prophecies that are in Isaiah or the Psalms, or if you connect that into the book of Revelation, you would begin to see that he was not just a king, but he was king of kings and Lord of lords. That's timeless truth number one from our genealogy. Timeless truth number two, Jesus rules over history. You know, a guy named Desmond Tutu once said, you don't choose your family. I shared that when my parents were in first service, a little uncomfortable because they know I tried to use that in some uh, heated discussions we've had uh, in the past. When I was, and I would just say, kids, I don't recommend it. But it, it is true that we don't choose our family. This is true for everybody except Jesus Christ. You see, he is from everlasting to everlasting, meaning every name that is on this list, he put there. He, he formed them in the womb. He directed their steps. And he places them in the genealogy. This is actually a big part of why we have a series on this, because we know that God is trying to communicate to us things about himself by the people that he placed in the lineage of Jesus Christ. When you read through a genealogy, you could be tempted to just view it as a list of names. But when you begin to see that these names are lives and stories that he shaped, you begin to see that you're actually stepping into a diamond mine. We just need to learn how to focus in and chisel out each of these individual stories like we're gonna be doing for the next three weeks. So that's timeless truth number two, that Jesus rules over history. The third timeless truth is that Jesus rules with grace. There's three names I wanna point out from this genealogy because they, they really stand out as being odd, especially for the one who would be steeped in Jewish genealogical tradition because they don't fit with many of the other names that are in here. So that would alert us that maybe God is trying to communicate something specific to us in this genealogy. And the three names, one is in verse three is Tamar, and then verse five we see Rahab and Ruth. So the first thing we can see about these three names is that these are all women. Women not, not typically included in, Jew, in Jewish genealogical tradition. 
which communicates, even in a time where this was culturally kind of odd, it affirms what we were reading about in Genesis and what we experience today as the church, that God has created us male and female. And so he has got both men and women in the genealogy that he is trying to express things about himself to us through them. And these aren't just any women. There two of them, if not three of them, are actually Gentile women. So then in this genealogy now, you've got, it's not just people who were like considered to be God's people, Israelites, but God is revealing that even back then, before it was revealed to us that as we talk about here, that God tore down the wall between Jew and Gentile, before that was ever spoken, God put these Gentile women into the genealogy to show us where he was headed. And the last thing is two of these women not such a great reputation, too known for prostitution. In fact, Rahab, who we'll be talking about, is often referred to in scripture as Rahab the prostitute. Like, I don't know how you would feel about that tagline being remembered in your name for all of history, but it's there in scripture. But again, God is trying to show us that he is a God of grace. That's our timeless truth number three, is that he rules by grace. And that grace is not limited by any of the types of things that we, by our human understanding, would typically limit our thoughts. It doesn't matter who you are, what ethnicity you are, what your moral history is, none of that limits God's grace. His grace is extended by his good pleasure alone. That's timeless truth number three. So th that's just one, one way we can look at uh, the genealogy that we're looking at here. But now we're gonna actually move on because our plan for this morning is to just pluck out one of these diamonds and we'll be doing this for the next three weeks. One of these stories from the genealogy and looking at what God is trying to reveal to us by having these people in the history and the lineage of Jesus Christ. So this morning we'll be looking at the story of Rahab. And our outline for the rest of our time together is just three points. There's three truths we're gonna look at from Rahab's life. The first one is that, that God saved Rahab by grace. The second is that God saved Rahab through faith. And the third is that God saved Rahab for good works. Now, if you flip over your bulletin, We've printed Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 on the back there because that verse really connects these truths together. And I'm gonna read it here for us. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so for the rest of our morning, we're gonna be in Joshua chapter two. So you can go ahead and turn there, but you can keep this bulletin for reference because as we work through her story, we're gonna see connections between what God did in the life of Rahab and this, this timeless truth that we see in Ephesians. And as you turn to Joshua two, I just wanna give you a quick recap of where we're gonna be stepping into the story of Israel. So Joshua chapter two takes place after the Israelites wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're on the edge of uh, the Jordan River about to go into the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to Abraham as we were talking about the last few weeks. But 40 years earlier, God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery 
in Egypt by great signs and miraculous wonders, bringing them out through the Red Sea, through this wilderness, and to the edge of the promised land. And when they get there, the people convince Moses to send 12 spies in to scout out the land. And what these spies see while they're there causes them to be extremely fearful. So they come back, 10 of them come back, they give a report to the people of everything that they've seen, and they work the people up into such a panic that the people decide, we're going to stone Moses, and we're going to raise up a new leader who will then lead us back to Egypt. And God, God responds with, like, do you not remember what happened like a couple weeks ago? Like, do you remember all the frogs? Like, there were a lot of frogs. Like, do you remember all the flies? you remember the darkness? Do you remember when I parted the Red Sea and you walked across on dry land and this is what's going to make you afraid? I promised you this land. I promised this land back at the time of Abraham. And then he says, because of your unbelief, because of the unbelief of the people, you are going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And all of you who did not believe are going to die in the wilderness, people of a certain age. And so that's what happens. And now in our story here, we're getting after that 40-year wandering period, if we would flip back a few chapters to Deuteronomy, we would see the death of Moses. And then after Moses, Joshua becomes the new leader of the people. So now Joshua is bringing them. They're on the very edge of the promised land. And that's where we're picking up in uh, Joshua chapter 2. So I'm going to read verse 1 uh, and then down through part of verse 4. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies to Shittim. And that's just how you say it. <laughs> Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here to look to tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Okay, we're gonna stop there for a second. So if you remember now, 40 years earlier, Moses sent some spies in and that didn't go so well. So here again, we see spies going in, but they're going in differently this time. You see in verse one, it says that Joshua sends the spies in secretly, meaning he doesn't tell the people of Israel that he sends, he's sending them. And in fact, they're gonna come back at the end of chapter two with a good report. And when they come back at the end, even then with a the good report, Joshua still doesn't tell anyone. And what we, what we, can, uh, what we can conclude from this is that in chapter one of Joshua, when God promised Joshua that I will give you every place in which you set your foot, that Joshua believed that promise. He didn't need any more information in order to do what God had called him to do. In fact, in Joshua uh, chapter one, verse 10, Joshua responds to this promise, and this is what he does. It says, so Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, Get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. 
And he does this before he even sends the spies. Let me tell you, to make a public declaration like this with a timeline communicates Joshua is committed. These people are going, yet he still sends these spies. And maybe it's just me, but these spies don't seem to be particularly good spies. You see, so being a spy kind of has like you have two jobs. The first one is to go look, and the second one is to sneak, right? So if you're good at looking, but not very good at sneaking, you're basically a tourist. <laughs> and, and this is what we see unfold. I don't know if you caught the timeline here, but within hours of these spies coming to the city, it seems like everybody knows both that they're there, who they are, and what they're doing. Right? Everybody, the people knew it, the king knew it, the prostitute knew it, like enough to go hide them as soon as they come into her house. So we have to ask, like, what is going on here? Something's not adding up. Why risk sending two mediocre spies behind enemy lines on an unnecessary reconnaissance mission? You know, oftentimes, God does not reveal to us all of what he's doing. You see, as this story unfolds, what we're gonna learn is that this was not just a reconnaissance mission. It was also a rescue mission. You see, God, in his grace for Rahab, is working a plan to save her from where she finds herself in. So these spies, while they are sent by Joshua to scout some things out, God is sending them. This is is not just coincidence that they end up at the house of Rahab. Of all the homes in the city, they end up there because God is orchestrating a plan. You know, if you have a pen, which is like a, a stylus with ink in it, you have a pen, I want you to flip over your bulletin and just circle two words for me. I want you to circle the words saved, and I want you to circle the words grace, because that is what we're seeing start to unfold here in this part of the story, is God's plan of grace unfolding to save Rahab. And what is she, what does she need saved from? It's a good question. Well, let me tell you, Canaan Not a great place. Not a very good place. If we would go back to Leviticus chapter 18 or chapter 20, you would see some of the things that are taking place in Canaan. And they ranged from everything, from child sacrifice to incest to all kinds of things that we're not gonna mention in public. And and God's response to all these things that the Canaanites do, he says this. He tells Israel, you must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. Give you a a picture into the mind of God as Joshua and his armies are waiting on the the banks of Jericho. So then as as a prostitute, Rahab would have been subject to some of the the worst of the depravity and the evil of the people of Canaan. If it's anything like it is today, there would have been people who were exploiting her economic vulnerability just to satisfy their own sinful lusts. She needed a savior who would work righteousness and justice 
for all who are oppressed. But there's also another hard truth at play here. Hard because of the society that we find ourselves in. You know, even though she was a victim to these things, victimhood, no matter how egregious the acts that are done against you, does not excuse your own sin. You see, she needed a savior because the armies of Israel were being deployed by God for judgment against the sin of the people of Canaan and of Jericho, and that includes Rahab. So she needed save not just from the life that she found herself in, but also from her own sin. Maybe some of you check one or both of those boxes. You feel... You need someone to save you from the life you're trapped in. Or maybe you need someone to save you from your past, the things you've done, the things that are on your rap sheet, or maybe you check both boxes like Rahab did. But if we can learn one thing from here is that if God's grace can extend even to Rahab based on who she is and the circumstances she found herself in, his grace can extend to each of us. It knows no limits. So let's look at what happens next here. This is in verses four through seven. The king hears that the spies are at Rahab's house. All right, so he sends these men to go get the spies. And when they get there, Rahab is hidden the spies upstairs. And then she, she lies to the king's guys. Like she lies to the government. Government's there, she lies. She says, you know, yes, the men were here. You're right. The men did come to my house, but they left. Like they left about, I don't know, 30 minutes ago. So, you know, the king, he's a hard guy. You better get a move on if you're gonna catch those guys because they went out through the gate. They went that way. The guys buy it and they, they book it. But this does raise a question for us though, which is, 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 it, is it okay to lie? I know there's kids in the room. I've got one myself in the room, so I'll be careful with my words here. There's, there's a few examples in scripture where God's people lie in order to protect life. This is one. If you wanna look up the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter one, you'll see it there as well. And so I'll just answer the question like this. If I ever find myself in a position where in order to protect life from someone who is evil, who is trying to take that life, and the only option that I see is to lie then I'm gonna pray for the faith of Rahab and for the faith of the Hebrew midwives, and I'm gonna lie. And this might seem like maybe a theological tangent, but if you remember the story that we started off with, or if you've heard any stories about what some of our brothers and sisters around the globe deal with on a day-to-day basis, you'll realize that this is not hypothetical for everybody. And so I, I suspect Lord willing, that there will be some of you who at at one point will be serving in a place where this becomes relevant and I want you to be prepared for when that time comes. And God, like he does here, will prove himself faithful. But for Rahab, lying is a risk. Like she barely knows these guys that are hiding upstairs. 
Like the king is in control of the whole city. Why does she, she's not an Israelite. She doesn't go to church. Why does she put her life on the line for these two guys? And we get the answer to that question in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. It says this, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. If you have a pen, and I want you to circle the word faith in Ephesians 2.8. What we're seeing here is this, it is by grace that Rahab has been saved through faith. Rahab was operating by faith. Like, this is absolutely wild. Like how does this woman... This Canaanite woman operating on the lowest rung of a society of the, one of the most corrupt cultures on the planet, how does she come to have faith? This should shock us and surprise us. There's no explanation for this. And I think we can get the answer in Joshua chapter two, starting in verse nine. This is, this is Rahab talking to the spies. So she goes up on the roof and she says to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. And at this point, what she's gonna say next sets her apart from everybody else in Jericho. Everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Yes, sir. So she breaks out in some Genesis 1 theology with these guys. Like, this is wild. And what's even crazier is that what she says here is said almost verbatim by Moses a couple weeks earlier, maybe a few months earlier, when they defeated Sion and Og. They, Moses said to the people at this point, he, he told the Israelites, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is what? Is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. This is the very acknowledgement that the people of Israel failed to make 40 years ago. And here is this Canaanite prostitute declaring this truth that we still praise God for today. The people saw what God did. The Canaanites saw what God was doing. But Rahab believed believed that the God who did all these things surely must be the God of all creation, the God of heaven above and on earth below. So because she heard, how does faith come? It comes by hearing. So she hears of what God has done and she believes enough to then protect some of God's people at the risk of her own life. This is absolutely amazing. And this woman, she has got some guts. I wanna to read to you starting in verse 17 here. She, so she negotiates with the spies now. Like this faith gives her so much boldness that she begins to negotiate and say, I will help you with your escape, but I got some requests. I got some, I got some family that needs saved and I'd like to be saved as well. So they go through this negotiation and in verse 17, this is where we pick up. 
It says, now the men had said to her, these are the spies, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, and all, fa- all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in your house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. All right, so they come up with this plan. Rahab agrees to the plan. She then helps the spies escape. She hangs a scarlet cord in her window. And then she waits. No timetable given. She just knows that at some point, Joshua is going to come. Now, this part of our story, this, this part between where the spies come and Rahab is waiting for Joshua to come, is very much like where we find ourselves today. You see, the coming of the spies was like the coming of Jesus in the flesh. He came in meekness. He came in weakness. He did not come with a weapon. He did not come with a great ceremony. And when he came, he came with the means of salvation. Now for Rahab, what salvation looked like, it looked like hanging a scarlet cord in the window. Just as 40 years earlier, the Israelites painted their doorposts with the scarlet red blood of a lamb. But both of these are just foreshadowing to the eternal truth that all of God's people for all time are saved by the scarlet red blood of Jesus Christ. But we must believe this by faith. You know, you've heard now what God has done for Israel. You've heard stories of what he's doing even just a couple of weeks ago, but we were all then faced with a choice. Are we gonna believe what we're hearing by faith? Are we gonna trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation from our own sins? And as you consider that question, I want you to keep in mind, especially this Advent season, this season where we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ, the advent of Jesus Christ. We also remember that Jesus is coming again soon and the the second time will not be like the first time. Let Let me read a few verses here from Revelation about what the second time will look like. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. You know, in these Christmas seasons, 
It can be easy to take comfort in the first coming of Christ while living as if he isn't coming again. I mean, remember what the spies said. They said, if you go outside the house into the streets of the city, your blood will be on your own head. Meaning that if you live like Christ isn't returning again soon, you're taking a huge risk. You know, one of, uh, one of my friends, probably one of the most uh, brilliant, self-aware people that I know, I was in a conversation with him once, and he told me this. He said, I'm not ready to give my life to God just yet because I still want to make more money. <laughs> he knew something that many of us struggle to remember. That following Jesus Christ, it does come with a cost. But we know staying in the room rather than going in the city, we realize that might come with a cost. But what we will receive are riches that are everlasting in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it is worth it to count whatever cost is going to be in order to trust in Jesus Christ and follow after him. And this is what the story of Rahab is calling us to. And so I ask, if he returns again soon, where will he find you? Will he find you living it up in the city? Or will he find you hunkered down in the room that is protected by the scarlet red cord, waiting for final salvation? All right, as we move to close here, the last question is, then what should we be doing here between the first and the second advent, the first and second coming of Jesus Christ? On the back of your bulletin, Ephesians 2.10 says this. It says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I want you to circle to do good works. God saves his people by grace through faith for good works. Like, that's why we're all still here, because God isn't done with us yet. That's why James says of Rahab, he says, the Rahab, the Rahab the prostitute was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies. And so the question we really need to just ask is, what is God calling us to? Maybe he's calling you to fight like Joshua. Like maybe there's, there's a stronghold of some kind in your life and this can look very different for each of us. Maybe there's a stronghold of greed in your life where your income or your net worth or your assets just consume your mind and, and weigh, make you weigh all of your decisions through that lens. Maybe there's a stronghold of lust in your mind that keeps you from walking everyday life without these other thoughts coming into your head. Maybe, maybe your, your struggles with pride, being the center of attention, desire for power, wanting control, wanting to live self-sufficient without dependency on others. I don't know what it is. I also know that some of us are trapped by walls of addiction. And we know now that substance abuse is not the only addiction we struggle with. In fact, probably in the church, our number one addiction is with technology. 
It's where we go to when we want to escape from the situations we find ourselves in. But whatever it is, I want you to remember the words that Moses gave to Israel when he said, the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. And I wanna tell you that there are people in this church that have decided, I'm not gonna fight alone. I'm gonna come together. We've got ministries called Regen. We have ministries called Reengage. These are people who find themselves perhaps in circumstances where they're like, God is calling me to fight, but I need some help. And there are people here who are actively fighting and would love to come alongside of you and fight with you as well. But maybe God is calling you to walk in the obedience of faith of the spies. Like maybe you feel like a mediocre spy. That's my struggle. Many days in life, even this week, I feel like a mediocre spy. Or maybe you feel like you're on a unnecessary mission. You don't really understand why God has you in this job where there's no room for advancement. Or you're at home with kids that like barely speak English trying to figure out, I'm a full grown adult here and these, with these kids all day. Like, I don't know where you find yourself in. But we're called to live in the obedience of faith wherever we find ourselves, trusting that God has plans at work for us that we can't possibly comprehend right now. You were created by God for good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Or maybe God has prepared you to bring the message of salvation to your household like Rahab did. And I don't know if you caught that earlier in the story, but I'm gonna read to you one of the things that she's negotiating with the spies. This is what she says. She says, now, please, this is in verse 12, swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. So she, she stays behind, like she could have left with the spies, but instead she, she makes this oath and she stays behind for her family. And what we know then is a couple days later, the Israelite army shows up and they begin to march around that city. Seven days, they go around and around. We know that. What we don't know is what's going on inside the city. We know that Rahab though, she went and told her family about what was coming. She told them the judgment of God is coming, but there's a means of salvation. And I don't know which of them came on day one. All right, I hear what you're saying. I trust you, I believe. And I don't know if one came running across the city on day seven, right before the trumpets sound. But what we see in chapter six is that they came. So I know many of you have people in your life that you have been praying for some of you for years. And I would encourage you from this story, do not lose hope. Don't give up. You don't know which day they're gonna come. But we know from the story of Rahab that God hears our prayers. And his, if his grace reached us, surely it can reach the person you've been praying for as well. And the message that we bring, it might sound silly, like there's a red rope, it's gonna be how we escape these guys who are walking around, but we know that God works to bring faith, even the most wild of stories to accomplish the impossible. 
So can you start to see why God puts the story of Rahab, the person of Rahab, into the lineage of Jesus Christ? It's to show us the timeless truth that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now I say, please stand, because at this time we're gonna sing about a truth that is so timeless that it was as true for Rahab as it is still for us today. Savior has ransomed 
want to show you one more thing here from the story, but I promise I'll get you out of here. Our Pat Kidman rooms are probably devolving into Lord of the Flies right now, so gotta get you going. But I want to share the conclusion of our story from Joshua 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 25. It says, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all that belonged to her because she hid the men of Joshua, that Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So she goes from being part of the, the people that were an enemy of God to being grafted in to God's people, along with her family. And I just wanna make a point, we've included Oikos cards in your bulletin. And if you're, if, you're not, if you're new here and haven't heard this word, this is just a Greek word, meaning those that are close to us, like the people who Rahab had on her heart and mind when she met with the spies. So I would encourage you in this Christmas season as we think about the first and the second coming of Christ to maybe fill out this card with the names of people who you're praying for and remember them as you remember the advent of Jesus. So now after the destruction of Jericho, we, we kind of lose track of Rahab. There's really not that much that's written about her from this point on. But we can infer from some of the things we read in, in Ruth and elsewhere that she settled down in a small village that's about 30 miles to the west of Jericho. She marries an Israelite named Sam and they have a child named Boaz and they move to this little village. And it's so small, by the way, that in, jo in the book of Joshua, there's seven chapters that talk about all the towns and all the boundaries and all the villages, and it's not even listed there. But you know, we sing about it to this day. You see, Rahab and Boaz and Salmon, they settled in a little village called Bethlehem. And what this should tell us is that when we're walking by faith, even our mundane decisions, God can use for eternal impact, even if we don't get to see it while we're here. So what a diamond of a story, right? I wanna leave you today with a, a prophecy from the book of Micah about Rahab's new hometown. It says this, but you, Bethlehem Epaphrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Unlikely origins. So as you prepare your heart for Christmas, just remember that we are awaiting people who wait expectantly for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to return. At this, go in peace. You are dismissed.